Section 25 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1b, Section 25, Chapter 15, Part 5. This event seemed to put an end to the pretensions of the Count of Montfort, but his affairs were immediately retrieved by an unexpected incident which inspired new life and vigour into his party. Jane of Flanders, Countess of Montfort, the most extraordinary woman of the age, was roused by the captivity of her husband from those domestic cares to which she had hitherto limited her genius, and she courageously undertook to support the falling fortunes of her family. No sooner did she receive the fatal intelligence than she assembled the inhabitants of Rennes, where she then resided, and carrying her infant son in her arms, deplored to them the calamity of their sovereign. She recommended to their care the illustrious orphan, the sole male remaining of their ancient princes, who had governed them with such indulgence and lenity, and to whom they had ever professed the most zealous attachment. She declared herself willing to run all hazards with them in so just a cause, discovered the resources which still remained in the alliance of England, and entreated them to make one effort against a usurper, who being imposed on them by the arms of France, would in return make a sacrifice to his protector of the ancient liberties of Brittany. The audience, moved by the affecting appearance, and inspirited by the noble conduct of the princess, vowed to live and die with her in defending the rights of her family. All the other fortresses of Brittany embraced the same resolution. The countess went from place to place, encouraging the garrisons, providing them with everything necessary for subsistence, and concerting the proper plans of defence, and after she had put the whole province in a good posture, she shut herself up in Hennebon, where she awaited with impatience the arrival of those succours which Edward had promised her. Meanwhile, she sent over her son to England, that she might both put him in a place of safety, and engage the king more strongly by such a pledge to embrace with zeal the interests of her family. Charles of Blois, anxious to make himself master of so important a fortress as Hennebon, and still more to take the countess prisoner, from whose vigour and capacity all the difficulties to his succession in Brittany now proceeded, sat down before the place with a great army, composed of French, Spaniards, Genoese, and some Bretons, and he conducted the attack with indefatigable industry. The defence was no less vigorous. The besiegers were repulsed in every assault, Frequent sallies were made with success by the garrison, and the countess herself being the most forward in all military operations, everyone was ashamed not to exert himself to the utmost in this desperate situation. 
one day she perceived that the besiegers entirely occupied in an attack had neglected a distant quarter of their camp and she immediately sallied forth at the head of a body of two hundred cavalry threw them into confusion did great execution upon them and set fire to their tents baggage and magazines but when she was preparing to return she found that she was intercepted and that a considerable body of the enemy had thrown themselves between her and the gates she instantly took her resolution she ordered her men to disband and to make the best of their way by flight to brest she met them at the appointed place of rendezvous collected another body of five hundred horse returned to henbon broke unexpectedly through the enemy's camp and was received with shouts and acclamation by the garrison who encouraged by this reinforcement and by so rare an example of female valour determined to defend themselves to the last extremity the reiterated attacks however of the besiegers had at length made several breaches in the walls and it was apprehended that a general assault which was every hour expected would overpower the garrison diminished in numbers and extremely weakened with watching and fatigue it became necessary to treat of a capitulation and the bishop of lyon was already engaged for that purpose in a conference with charles of blois when the countess who had mounted to a high tower and was looking towards the sea with great impatience descried some sails at a distance she immediately exclaimed behold the succours the english succours no capitulation this fleet had on board a body of heavy armed cavalry and six thousand archers whom edward had prepared for the relief of henbon but who had been long detained by contrary winds they entered the harbour under the command of sir walter manny one of the bravest captains of england and having inspired fresh courage into the garrison immediately sallied forth beat the besiegers from all their posts and obliged them to decamp but notwithstanding this success the countess of montfort found that her party overpowered by numbers was declining in every quarter and she went over to solicit more effectual succours from the king of england edward granted her a considerable reinforcement under robert of artois who embarked on board a fleet of forty-five ships and sailed to brittany he was met in his passage by the enemy an action ensued where the countess behaved with her wonted valour and charged the enemy sword in hand but the hostile fleets after a sharp action were separated by a storm and the english arrived safely in brittany the first exploit of robert was the taking of van which he mastered by conduct and address but he survived a very little time this prosperity the breton noblemen of the party of charles assembled secretly in arms attacked van of a sudden and carried the place chiefly by reason of a wound received by robert of which he soon after died at sea on his return to england 
after the death of this unfortunate prince the chief author of all the calamities with which his country was overwhelmed for more than a century edward undertook in person the defence of the countess of montfort and as the last truce with france was now expired the war which the english and french had hitherto carried on as allies to the competitors for brittany was therefore conducted in the name and under the standard of the two monarchs the king landed at morbihan near vannes with an army of twelve thousand men and being master of the field he endeavoured to give a lustre to his arms by commencing at once three important sieges that of vannes of rennes and of nantes but by undertaking too much he failed of success in all his enterprises even the siege of vannes which edward in person conducted with vigour advanced but slowly and the french had all the leisure requisite for making preparations against him the duke of normandy eldest son of philip appeared in brittany at the head of an army of thirty thousand infantry and four thousand cavalry and edward was now obliged to draw together all his forces and to entrench himself strongly before vannes where the duke of normandy soon after arrived and in a manner invested the besiegers the garrison and the french camp were plentifully supplied with provisions while the english who durst not make any attempt on the place in the presence of a superior army drew all their subsistence from england exposed to the hazards of the sea and sometimes to those which arose from the fleet of the enemy in this dangerous situation edward willingly hearkened to the meditation of the pope's legates the cardinals of palestrine and frescati who endeavoured to negotiate if not a peace at least a truce between the two kingdoms a treaty was concluded for a cessation of arms during three years and edward had the abilities notwithstanding his present dangerous situation to procure himself very equal and honourable terms it was agreed that van should be sequestered during the truce in the hands of the legates to be disposed of afterwards as they pleased and though edward knew the partiality of the court of rome towards his antagonists he saved himself by this device from the dishonour of having undertaken a fruitless enterprise it was also stipulated that all prisoners should be released that the places in brittany should remain in the hands of the present possessors and that the allies on both sides should be comprehended in the truce edward soon after concluding this treaty embarked with his army for england the truce though calculated for a long time was of very short duration and each monarch endeavoured to throw on the other the blame of its infraction of course the historians of the two countries differ in their account of the matter it seems probable however as is affirmed by the french writers that edward in consenting to the truce had no other view than to extricate himself from a perilous situation into which he had fallen and was afterwards very careless in observing it in all the memorials which remain on this subject 
he complains chiefly of the punishment inflicted on olivier de clisson john de motobar and other breton noblemen who he says were partisans of the family of mountfort and consequently under the protection of england but it appears that at the conclusion of the truce those noblemen had openly by their declarations and actions embraced the cause of charles of blois and if they had entered into any secret correspondence and engagements with edward they were traitors to their party and were justly punishable by philip and charles for their breach of faith nor had edward any ground of complaint against france for such severities but when he laid these pretended injuries before the parliament whom he affected to consult on all occasions that assembly entered into the quarrel advised the king not to be amused by a fraudulent truce and granted him supplies for the renewal of the war the counties were charged with a fifteenth for two years and the boroughs with a tenth the clergy consented to give a tenth for three years these supplies enabled the king to complete his military preparations and he sent his cousin henry earl of derby son the earl of lancaster into guyenne for the defence of that province this prince the most accomplished in the english court possessed to a high degree the virtues of justice and humanity as well as those of valour and conduct and not content with protecting and cherishing the province committed to his care he made a successful invasion on the enemy he attacked the count of lyle the french general at bergerac beat him from his entrenchments and took the place he reduced a great part of perigord and continually advanced in his conquests till the count of lyle having collected an army of ten or twelve thousand men sat down before oberoche in hopes of recovering that place which had fallen into the hands of the english the earl of derby came upon him by surprise with only a thousand cavalry threw the french into disorder pushed his advantage and obtained a complete victory lyle himself with many considerable nobles was taken prisoner after this important success derby made a rapid progress in subduing the french provinces he took montségur montpesant villefranche miremont and tonnins with the fortress of damasen aguilon a fortress deemed impregnable fell into his hands from the cowardice of the governor angouleme was surrendered after a short siege the only place where he met with considerable resistance was riol which however was at last reduced after a siege of above nine weeks he made an attempt on blaye but thought it more prudent to raise the siege than waste his time before a place of small importance the reason why derby was permitted to make without opposition such progress on the side of guyenne was the difficulties under which the french finances then laboured and which had obliged philip to lay on new impositions 
particularly the duty on salt, to the great discontent and almost mutiny of his subjects. But after the court of France was supplied with money, great preparations were made, and the Duke of Normandy, attended by the Duke of Burgundy and other great nobility, led towards Guyenne a powerful army, which the English could not think of resisting in the open field. The Earl of Derby stood on the defensive, and allowed the French to carry on at leisure the siege of Angoulême, which was their first enterprise. John, Lord Norwich, the governor, after a brave and vigorous defence, found himself reduced to such extremities as obliged him to employ a stratagem in order to save his garrison, and to prevent his being reduced to surrender at discretion. He appeared on the walls, and desired a parley with the Duke of Normandy. The prince there told Norwich that he supposed he intended to capitulate. Not at all, replied the governor, but as to-morrow is the feast of the Virgin, to whom I know that you, sir, as well as myself, bear a great devotion, I desire a cessation of arms for that day. The proposal was agreed to, and Norwich, having ordered his forces to prepare all their baggage, marched out next day, and advanced towards the French camp. The besiegers, imagining they were to be attacked, ran to their arms, but Norwich sent a messenger to the duke, reminding him of his engagement. The duke, who piqued himself on faithfully keeping his word, exclaimed, I see the governor has outwitted me, but let us be content with gaining the place, and the English were allowed to pass through the camp unmolested. After some other successes, the Duke of Normandy laid siege to Aguilon, and as the natural strength of the fortress, together with a brave garrison under the command of the Earl of Pembroke and Sir Walter Manny, rendered it impossible to take the place by assault, he purposed, after making several fruitless attacks, to reduce it by famine, but before he could finish this enterprise, he was called to another quarter of the kingdom by one of the greatest disasters that ever befell the French monarchy. Edward, informed by the Earl of Derby of the great danger to which Guyenne was exposed, had prepared a force with which he intended in person to bring it relief. He embarked at Southampton on board a fleet of near a thousand sail of all dimensions, and carried with him, besides all the chief nobility of England, his eldest son, the Prince of Wales, now fifteen years of age. The winds proved long contrary, and the king, in despair of arriving in time at Guyenne, was at last persuaded by Geoffrey de Harcourt to change the destination of his enterprise. This nobleman was a Norman by birth, had long made a considerable figure in the court of France, and was generally esteemed for his personal merit and his valour. But being disobliged and persecuted by Philip, he had fled into England, had recommended himself to Edward, who was an excellent judge of men, and had succeeded to Robert of Artois, 
in the invidious office of exciting and assisting the king in every enterprise against his native country. He had long insisted that an expedition to Normandy promised, in the present circumstances, more favourable success than one to Guyenne, that Edward would find the northern provinces almost destitute of military force, which had been drawn to the south, that they were full of flourishing cities, whose plunder would enrich the English, that their cultivated fields, as yet unspoiled by war, would supply them with plenty of provisions, and that the neighbourhood of the capital rendered every event of importance in those quarters. These reasons, which had not before been duly weighed by Edward, began to make more impression after the disappointments which he had met with in his voyage to Guyenne. He ordered his fleet to sail to Normandy, and safely embarked his army at La Hogue. The army which during the course of the ensuing campaign was crowned with the most splendid success, consisted of four thousand men at arms, ten thousand archers, ten thousand Welsh infantry, and six thousand Irish. The Welsh and the Irish were light, disorderly troops, fitter for doing execution in a pursuit, or scouring the country, than for any stable action. The bow was always esteemed a frivolous weapon, where true military discipline was known, and regular bodies of well-armed foot maintained. The only solid force in this army were the men at arms, and even these, being cavalry, were on that account much inferior in the shock of battle to good infantry, and as the whole were new levied troops, and are led to entertain a very mean idea of the military force of those ages, which being ignorant of every other art, had not properly cultivated the art of war itself, the sole object of general attention. The king created the Earl of Arundel constable of his army, and the earls of Warwick and Harcourt marshals. He bestowed the honour of knighthood on the Prince of Wales and several of the young nobility immediately upon his landing. After destroying all the ships in La Hogue, Barfleur, and Cherbourg, he spread his army over the whole country and gave them an unbounded license of burning, spoiling, and plundering every place of which they became masters. The loose discipline then prevalent, could not be much hurt by these disorderly practices, and Edward took care to prevent any surprise by giving orders to his troops, however they might disperse themselves in the day, time always to quarter themselves at night near the main body. In this manner, Montebourg, Carenton, saint Lô, Valoigne, and other places in the Cotentin, were pillaged without resistance, and a universal consternation was spread over the province. The intelligence of this unexpected invasion soon reached Paris, and threw Philip into great perplexity. He issued orders, however, for levying forces in all quarters, and dispatched the Count of Eu, constable of France, 
and the Count of Tancarville to the defence of Caen, a populous and commercial but open city which lay in the neighbourhood of the English army. The temptation of so rich a prize soon allured Edward to approach it, and the inhabitants, encouraged by their numbers, and by the reinforcements which they daily received from the country, ventured to meet him in the field. But their courage failed them on the first shock. They fled with precipitation. The counts of Eu and Tonkerville were taken prisoners. The victors entered the city along with the vanquished, and a furious massacre commenced, without distinction of age, sex, or condition. The citizens, in despair, barricaded there and assaulted the English with stones, bricks, and every missile weapon. The English made way by fire to the destruction of the citizens, till Edward, anxious to save both his spoil and his soldiers, stopped the massacre, and having obliged the inhabitants to lay down their arms, gave his troops license to begin a more regular and less hazardous plunder of the city. The pillage continued for three days. The king reserved for his own share the jewels, plate, silks, fine cloth, and fine linen, and he bestowed all the remainder of the spoil on his army. The whole was embarked on board the ships and sent over to England, together with three hundred of the richest citizens of Cayenne, whose ransom was an additional profit, which he expected afterwards to levy. This dismal scene passed in the presence of two cardinal legates, who had come to negotiate a peace between the kingdoms. The king moved next to Rouen, in hopes of treating that city in the same manner, but found that the bridge over the Seine was already broken down, and that the King of France himself was arrived there with his army. He marched along the banks of that river towards Paris, destroying the whole country, and every town and village which he met with on his road. Some of his light troops carried their ravages even to the gates of Paris, and the royal palace of Saint-Germain, together with Nanterre, Royal, and other villages, was reduced to ashes within sight of the capital. End of section 25, chapter 15, part 5.